interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Now I'm going to um, to read John 3, 1 to 21. John 3, 1 to 21. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, and still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So reads Holy Scripture. At least until a few years ago, John 3.16 was the best-known passage in the Western world. And this passage speaks of God giving the Son. So, Jesus is presented thus as the supreme gift of God. But this is one of those passages where, in fact, you get to feel the weight of it and the nuance of it only when it is put into its context and you see the whole flow. And the whole flow really has to 
deal with the drama of the interview between Jesus and Nicodemus and what was said about the new birth. So I want to begin along those lines and work my way to John 3.16 in due course. Some of you who are older, most of us who are older here, will, will remember when the Datsun automobile became the Nissan. Datsun was uh, the, the name of the premier vehicle made by Nissan Motors. And then at some point, some uh, executive, I assume, in, um, in Japan decided that Datsun would drop and the company name Nissan would be the base name for those um, vehicles. And in this country, that was accompanied by endless advertisements and radio and television and newspapers about the born-again Datsun. Do you remember? <coughs> Yes, well, if you don't remember, that tells me something either about your age or your interest in advertisements. We heard endless ditties and songs and saw endless advertisements about the born-again Datsun. And I, I venture to say that um, that, plus one or two other developments, marked the beginning of the insertion of the term born-again into Western secular terminology. Pretty soon, if a politician changed parties or economic policies, then you heard about a born-again Democrat. Or you heard about someone who has born-again monetarist policies or whatever. And, and then in the press, moreover, born-again was, was sometimes used as an adjective modifying the word Christian. Where there are Christians, and then there are born-again Christians. And the born-again Christians in the secular media are usually the mean ones. Um, they're the ones who are somewhat to the right of Attila the Hun. You know, you, they're so far to the right you need field glasses to see them. The rest of us are nice Christians. They're born-again Christians. And, 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 and so the, the term invites discussion, doesn't it? Because uh, it's not at all transparent in a larger world. Does born-again mean that you've changed your name, as in the Datsun? or changed your mind, or that you're some form of religious nutter. Well, in fact, so far as our records go, we have not found in the Judeo-Christian heritage any reference to being born again earlier than this one. So far as we know, Jesus coins it in connection with his interview with Nicodemus. <clears throat> and it's worth noting that Nicodemus himself did not find the expression transparent when it was first used which may be mildly encouraging. Um, let me break down um, this text into four uh, units, and, uh, and then I think that uh, the pieces will come in, uh, together uh, pretty uh, uh, holistically. Number one, what Jesus said about being born again, verses 1 to 10. What Jesus actually said about being born again. Verse 1, Nicodemus is introduced. He is a member of the Sanhedrin, we're told, of the Jewish ruling council. He is also called, in verse 10, Israel's teacher. The particular form of the expression in the, the original suggests it may well be a title. That is, uh, the Grand Mufti, or the Regis Professor of Divinity. It may have been that he was the supremo in the theological arena, the top of the faculty, as it were. Um, he approaches Jesus and refers to him as rabbi. By the second century, rabbi was a form of uh, address 
that was reserved for Jewish religious teachers who had been through the approved schools and were recognized and so on. But in the first century, that was not so. And in, in, in the second century, it was more or less equivalent to our reverend. You get revved up eventually and when you're properly recognized. And in, in, in the second century, rabbi functioned that way. But in the first century, it was not so. It was an informal term. And it's remarkable in some ways that someone who is the Regis Professor of Divinity would approach an itinerant preacher from uh, Galilee, of all places, and, um, and, and, uh, and, and address him as rabbi. His, um, his, his address is full of initial ironies. Uh, on the one hand, there's some respect. He came to Jesus at night and said, uh, Rabbi, there's the respect, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. The we here is probably slightly pompous. There is further reason for thinking so a little farther on in the text. Uh, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. Yes, we do. For we have observed certain things. It's got that feel to it. Not just I. But, but, but we, there is a slight pomposity to the whole thing, which is confirmed a little, a little later on. At the same time, there is an independence of judgment that is admirable in the man. You, you see, every age has its share of religious charlatans. Every age has its share of pseudo-miracle workers. Um, dare I take a minute or two and, and remind you of Popoff? Do you remember Popoff? He, he was a, a faith healer in California a few years ago who had this pretty spectacular public ministry and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and it was on TV and, and the like. He had this habit when people came into these huge halls of, of saying, um, the Spirit is telling me that there is a woman, uh, row J, seat 46, you have back pain and God commands you to come down now and be healed, you see? And despite the best efforts of the press, they could never prove collusion. But people noticed that Popoff had a hearing aid. Now, what a faith healer is doing with a hearing aid is another question. We'll let that one pass. <laughs> but some ABC technicians were mildly suspicious. And um, they went in with a radio scanner. Now, for the technologically challenged, a radio scanner is a device which sweeps back and forth across all the full range of radio frequencies and picks up the strongest signal and locks on it. And it turned out that Mrs. Popoff, when people were coming into the auditorium and were invited to fill out little prayer cards, she was one of those who was pulling in these little prayer cards, you see. And if... Um, if she spotted somebody coming in with a terminal case of cancer and asking for prayer, that one went in the rubbish. But if she saw someone coming in with something that could be usefully psychosomatic, back pain or something like that, then she would put it in a separate little pile. And she'd note where those people sat. And J46, she'd put it on the card. And then once the meeting got going, she had a little radio, which she radioed down to what was not a hearing aid, but was a radio receiver. 
Do you see? And so ABC went in there with a small mini cam and they, they videotaped the thing just as it was, but they had the, the, the scanner going on. And they played it on national TV, first the way it looked, and then putting in the signal. Do, 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 do you see? They played it twice. Uh, oh dear, there's a woman in, in, uh, in, in, in row J, seat 46, that says she got back pain. You might try her, you see? And they, the Lord is telling me that, you see? And it was all interwoven together and put on national TV. And you might say then that his ministry sort of popped off. Um, I, I was back in California two or three years ago to speak at something or other and was flipping the, the channels to, to pick up the CNN in my, in my hotel room and who should pop back up on the screen but pop off he's, he's back in the business again people have such short memories but the point is there have always been these manipulators you, you, you see and uh, real out and out frauds and then there, there are some people who are doing some good but you think maybe their focus is maybe a bit skewed or, or whatever but Nicodemus had come upon this man Jesus and the kinds of miracles he was doing struck him as not the norm he was dealing with people with um, magnificently impossible diseases and seeing them cured and, and so his interest is piqued, and he's part of a Jewish community that is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. With all those promises in texts like Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65, the abolition of illness and death, and he, he cannot help but wonder. The text says that he came to Jesus by night. What does that mean? Well, in one sense, of course, it's merely a chronological marker. But you don't read John's Gospel very long before you realize that he is an enormously nuanced writer who's full of all kinds of symbol-laden markers. Some people have thought, well, maybe this means that he came to Jesus at night because he was too embarrassed to come during the day. You know, he, the Regis Professor of Divinity, coming to a rural itinerant. I don't believe it. Because when Nicodemus shows up later in the, in the account, never does he appear like the timid type, the retiring daisy. No, sir, he's willing to argue with um, the Sanhedrin itself in chapter 7. Later he asks a pilot for the body. He, he's not afraid of anybody. He does his own thing, cuts his own swath. No, no, no. If you want to find out what by night means, you have to look at how John uses categories like that. And you discover that he is full of light-darkness dualities and things of that order. Thus, for example, in chapter 13, when um, Judas Iscariot is finally dismissed, um, what you are about to do, do quickly. And he went out, and it was night. Well, that too is a chronological marker, but it's also a way of saying that Judas Iscariot went out into the sheer horror of an absolute night, do you see? And in this passage, how does it end in verses 19 to 21? It ends with this light-darkness duality. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. And what are we told at the beginning of the passage? He came to Jesus by night. You see, in one sense, it merely is a chronological marker. In another sense, it is saying Nicodemus really didn't see. He didn't understand. He saw a little bit, but he, he didn't really understand. And that's now going to be shown by the, by the narrative itself. How then does Jesus respond Nicodemus, so far, has not asked a question. But re Jesus replies, verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How does Jesus reply in verse 3 
answer what Nicodemus is saying. What is the logical, coherent connection between verse 2 and verse 3? Well, people have imagined all kinds of things. They, they, they have presupposed that Nicodemus was about to ask the question and Jesus answered the question that Nicodemus was about to ask. So, in this reconstruction of things, Nicodemus was going to say something like this. Uh, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher sent from God, for no one could do these miracles that God is doing unless God were, that you are doing unless God were with him. So, tell us then, are you the promised Messiah, the one who was to come, or not? Whereupon Jesus replies, in effect, listen, Nicodemus, the really crucial question you should face is not whether I'm the Messiah. That's true, but that's not what you need to face. The really crucial question is who can get into the messianic kingdom? And I tell you that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that works, but that's an awful lot of stuff to put in there to make the whole text work. It's a huge ellipsis. Not only so, but it means that Jesus becomes one of those rude people who can't wait for you to finish your question before he has got to spit out his answer. Which is a bit out of character too, I would have thought. Now, I think there's something else going on that is again confirmed a little farther on in the text. Nicodemus begins with this um, interested, curious, in some ways respectful, but also somewhat pompous beginning. <clears throat> Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, we do. For we have observed the quality of your miracles. We have. Whereupon Jesus says, my dear Nicodemus, you don't see a blessed thing. You don't see the kingdom of God. You can't. Unless God, unless you're born again. You see, in other words, he's beginning by claiming to see certain things. And Jesus begins by pricking his pretensions immediately and saying, you don't really see them at all. Oh, you see the miraculous sign, of course. But don't forget that the notion of kingdom was dynamic. You might better render it reign. He is claiming, this man Nicodemus, to see something of the power of God, the reign of God, the rule of God in, in these miraculous intervening miracles. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're not really seeing it at all. You can't. Unless you're born again. Now, Nicodemus may have found what Jesus said incomprehensible, but he was no fool. You don't get to be Regis Professor of Divinity if you are a twit. So when he asked the question in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I don't think we're to presuppose that Nicodemus seriously thought that Jesus was seriously saying the only way you can be born again is by sort of shrinking, getting tiny again, down to embryo size, and, you know, starting all over and coming back out again. You know? That, that would presuppose that either Nicodemus was a hopeless literalist, and you don't get to be a Regis Professor of Divinity if you're a hopeless literalist, or he thought Jesus was a hopeless literalist, in which case he didn't have much of an opinion of him either, and shouldn't have been calling him rabbi in the first place. No, I don't think that's what's going on. The point is that most conservative Jews in Jesus' day longed for the coming of the kingdom. They longed for the coming of the Messiah, the dawning of the Messianic Age. But granted that expectation, Jesus could be understood to be saying that what we need is um, new men and women. 
not new institutions, new lives, not new laws, new creatures, not new creeds, new people, not mere displays of power. We need people who are born again. But how do you generate new people? People are people. Most of us have felt the pressure, perhaps. We wake up in the middle of the night sometime and we... Um, we reflect back on some moment of extraordinary embarrassment where we said something or did something. We wish to God with all our hearts we could undo. But we can't. The moving hand writes and moves on. You can't undo it. What you get, what, what, what you did cannot be undone. Time does not run backwards. Hence, Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, Ah, for a man to arise in me that the man I am may no longer be. I venture to say that most thoughtful people have felt that sometimes. Even the eternal optimists amongst us in our most sober moments. Or in the words of the poet John Clare, if life had a second edition, how I would correct the proofs. Whether we would or not is another question, but we like to think that we would, at least. And yet here is Jesus promising new life, new beginnings, new origins, new birth. In that sense, it seems to me that what Nicodemus is protesting is something like this. Jesus you might be a miracle worker, but now you're going over the top. You might be able to heal cancer or make paralytics walk again. But you men, you women, that's not possible. We are what we are. You can't enter into your mother's womb and be born again. You're promising too much. But Jesus doesn't back down. Verse 5. He repeats what he said in verse 3 with some minor changes to make what he is saying a little clearer. I tell you the truth, he says with his strong asseveration. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean, to be born of water and the Spirit? Well, there have been many suggestions over the years, as you can imagine. Some think born of water and the Spirit means to be born of baptism and the Spirit. Well, there's no mention of baptism in the immediate context. And how Nicodemus is supposed to have thought of Christian baptism at this stage, I'm not quite sure. Some think that it means natural birth followed by spiritual birth. In natural birth, the waters break. And then after the waters break, eventually you're born. So you're born out of water. And then you have to be born out of spirit. So there's a natural birth and a spiritual birth. Possible. The trouble is, um, I spent some time once working through all the Greco-Roman sources and all the Jewish sources that had anything to do with birth that I knew anything about. I spent a lot of time on this question trying to find out any place in the ancient world that spoke of natural birth as being born out of water. And I couldn't find one. I'm not sure that it would be a transparent expression but there's more than that. Compare verse 3 and verse 5. Set them up in parallel so that you can see how they're put together. Verse 3, I tell you the truth. 
Verse 5, I tell you the truth. Verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Minor change, but still the same domain. Verse 3, unless he is born again. Verse 5, unless he is born of water and the Spirit. You see, the parallelism suggests then that born of water and the Spirit is the same thing as being born again. In other words, under the second interpretation, you've got two births. Born of water, number one, and born of Spirit, which is the born again part. But the parallelism of the two verses suggests that being born of water and the Spirit does mean born again, do you see? And in fact, in the Greek, it's a little stronger yet. But there's another factor. By verse 10, Jesus is going to tear a gentle strip off Nicodemus for not understanding these things. He says, you are the Regis Professor of Divinity, and you don't understand these things? Now, what is it in Nicodemus's station and training and position and role that means that he should have understood these things? Well, he was supposed to be a master of Scripture and of Jewish tradition. That's what it meant to be a teacher in Israel. So the question is, where is it in Scripture that he should have developed the categories that would have enabled him to understand what Jesus was talking about? That's the question, do you see? Is there any place in what we call the Old Testament where Jesus speaks unambiguously of being born again? Nope. On the other hand, there are some places where water and spirit come together in very telling collocations. For example, I think it's probably this one that Jesus has in mind, but there are several places where they come together. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, it's one of the new covenant passages. Ezekiel, six centuries before Jesus, predicts a time when God will make a new covenant. He will sprinkle them with clean water and he will pour out his spirit upon them. And in terms of the Old Testament symbolism of the, of the age, it's a way of saying he will clean them up, sprinkling them with pure water. He will clean them up. He will make them morally clean. And he will give them a God-given newness, a newness of life, a regeneration. The same language is used somewhat differently without the water part in, in, in Jeremiah 31 in the promise of a new covenant. I will write my law in their hearts and they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. No longer will a man teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. You see, Or again, you get the pouring out of the spirit on the last days in Zechariah and elsewhere. Passages that are picked up then on the day of Pentecost by Peter. No, no, no. What is going on then is this. Jesus is saying... There are so many expectations in the first century of a Davidic figure who will come along with lots of power and he will kick out the Romans and restore the Davidic kingdom and the borders will be from the river that is uh, uh, the Euphrates all the way down to the borders of Egypt and, and the Davidic monarchy will be restored and the tribes will reassemble. But very few thought long and hard about this array of Old Testament biblical prophecies that promised a change of heart. A change of life, a change of, change of origin, the pouring out of the Spirit, a regeneration. So it seems to me that what Jesus is doing by this born-again language, which can equally be rendered a, 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 a generation again, or a generation even from above. The word again itself is ambiguous in Greek and mean either from above or again. 
is, is now unpacking it in verse 5 and saying it's, it, it's what the Old Testament scriptures have prophesied long ago. It's this new covenant language that, that is promising something of water and spirit, a cleaning up with God-given, life-transforming power and force within, within the mind and heart of the believer. And then he gives a couple of illustrations. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Pigs give birth to pigs. Butterflies give birth to butterflies. Chihuahuas give birth to chihuahuas. That is like produces like. How do you get someone who is truly the child of God unless God intervenes to give a kind of new origin? That's the point. You're right, Nicholas, in one sense. You can't change people. People give rise to people. And people are broken and sinful and, 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 and corrupt. That, 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 that's true. What it takes is God to intervene to give a new origin. That's correct. So you shouldn't be surprised that people have to be born again because flesh just gives birth to flesh. It's the spirit who gives birth to spirit. And then he uses an analogy. Verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This works better in Hebrew and in Greek than it does in English because the same word for spirit is the word that is used for wind. And perhaps they're standing on a street corner in Jerusalem and a, a gust goes by and a tumbleweed dances over the ground. And, and Jesus turns to Nicodemus and says, Look, you hear the wind whistling? You see its effect? But you can't tell where it comes from. In those days, they had even less meteorology than we have today. Nobody was parked in the street of Jerusalem thinking, oh, there's a high in the Arabian desert. This is a cyclone. We're on the left side. That's why the wind is coming now from this particular angle. They're not thinking in those terms, are they? Is it? But, but that doesn't mean that you deny that there's wind or that you cannot see the effect of the wind. You may not have the full explanation for how it works, but you, you don't deny its effect. I certainly wasn't denying it last night when I got out of that meeting and felt the streets, the wind through the streets of Ithaca at about 50 miles an hour blowing me apart. Um, you know, I, I didn't start thinking, oh, there's a high up near Schenectady or someplace. I, I, I don't know where your wind in Ithaca comes from. All I know is that I was being blown around. Yeah, you don't know either. It's part of the Ithacaization or whatever it is you, you, you call it here. Now, the analogy, of course, is this. When you see someone who is genuinely born of God, you may not be able to explain the whole thing, but you see the effects. You can't deny the effects. You watch someone who really has been transformed by the gospel, and they were one thing, and now they're another thing. And You may not be able to explain all the mechanisms, but it's pretty hard to deny. Lloyd-Jones used to say that one of the most convincing apologies in the old-fashioned sense of apology, defenses of the gospel, is precisely the fact that men and women are converted out of every conceivable kind of background, social stratum, race, tribe, genetic disposition. Uh, there are intellectuals and, and there are anti-intellectuals and everything in between. There are people who know which end of a screwdriver to hold and people who will never know which end of a screwdriver to hold. There are people who love computer monitors and people who can't manage anything more recent than a quill pen. There, there are people who love books and there are people who only love videos. There are people who are black and white and tall and short and rich and poor. And, 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 and in fact, one of the most remarkable things about the church is that we don't fit worldwide any narrow social spectrum. I can introduce you to people in Papua New Guinea whom I've met who, who when they were young, were headhunters. And then there's the odd Christian at Cornell, too. 
And, and, and all I'm saying is, is that, that you get people from different skins and color and background. And, and it's just so hard once you meet enough genuine Christians who, who were one thing and are, are, are another thing. And their, their lives are heading in another direction. It is hard to deny the effect. You may not be able to explain all the mechanism, but you, you see the change. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. This is then what Jesus said about being born again. Second, why Jesus could speak about being born again. Why Jesus could speak about being born again. Verses 11 to 13. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. The question to ask is, why this plural we? To whom is Jesus referring? Some have said, this surely refers to Jesus and his disciples. Jesus sort of associates himself with them. Read on in the chapter and you discover that the, the disciples are still pretty clueless themselves. You know, they get into a debate with a Jew about the meaning of, of baptism and, and John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. And they, they don't really have a clue what's going on at this point. It's, it's not for nothing that, that, that contemporary writers speak of the misunderstanding theme in John's Gospel because the, the, the disciples themselves still don't have it put together very well. So for Jesus to say, we speak of what we know, Peter and James and Bartimaeus and Bartholomew and all the rest, you know. We speak what we know we do would be horribly optimistic, to say the least. Others say this proves that John's gospel is horribly anachronistic. This is not really Jesus speaking. It's the later church speaking. It's just that as John was writing, he sort of forgot where he was in the whole show. And now it's the whole church that is speaking. And, and so he slipped in this anachronism and put it on Jesus' lips. And, and dear old evangelist John was a bit confused at this point, And you just have to put up with a mistake. Sorry. Well, I suppose that's logically possible. But the more you read John's Gospel, the more you're impressed with his literary sense, with his, uh, with, with, with his constant ability to distinguish between what people understood back then and what they only understood later. In other words, one of the areas where John is so sharp is precisely in this distinguishing between what the disciples understood back then and only later. So why should he have blown such a huge gaff now? Uh, John, John is one of the most literarily sensitive writers in the New Testament. I think that what he is doing is picking up precisely on Nicodemus's we in verse 2. I think Jesus picked it up. You see, Nicodemus comes along and says, <coughs> Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. We do. Jesus says, we know what we're talking about too, we do. I think it's as simple as that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it, it's more complicated than that. It fits the previous verse. You see, you're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things. Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know too, we do. And we testify to what we have seen. Yes, we do. Um, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. And then he drops the device because he's trying to make a point as to where this revelation comes from. So he reverts to first person singular. I have spoken to you of earthly things. And you do not believe. Now, the earthly things in this context have to be the new birth. 
No doubt the new birth comes from God, but it takes place on earth with ordinary human people here. You see, it's an earthly thing. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In other words, supposing I try to authorize this by telling you something in great detail about what it is like in glory. Will you believe that? You can't even swallow what the scriptures say about what must take place on the earth. Does that not remind you of what uh, Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? It, it says that uh, he was caught up to the third heaven and saw things that are inexpressible, things that he could not uh, uh, talk about, things that he was forbidden to talk about. I have a sister who 30 years ago worked for a while with a tribe that was pre-Stone Age in its technology in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. Now suppose, for argument's sake, suppose you had one of these tribals come out and you have a PhD from Cornell in linguistics, and you're well equipped with phonology courses and the like, so you can hear all that they that they that they're, that they're, they're they're saying. You can hear the sounds, and you set yourself for three or four years, even though their language has never been written. You set yourself the task of learning their language extremely well, and you do. You're gifted. You have a good ear. You have a good sense. You're well trained in linguistics. You understand the structure of Neo Melanesian languages and. And, 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 and you go in there now with this strange assignment. I don't, I don't know why you're given it, but you have this strange assignment. You speak the language well, and you're dropped in, and you must explain to these people the mysteries of electricity. And you're not allowed to bring any objects to illustrate anything. Okay? Now, this has to be 30 years ago. Nowadays, half these used to be pre-Stone Age tribes. Now they have satellite dishes and radios and porn movies in their huts. And it's unbelievable. It's another world nowadays than, than, than it was 30 years ago. When my sister was there, you, you took a, a four-wheel drive three days to get into the back of beyond and then hiked in for the last day on foot when she and her husband were there. Nowadays, you can drop in by helicopter almost anywhere at any time and, and there's instant access to almost everything. But 30 years ago now, you've got the language, you go in, you have to explain electricity without any using any objects. How do you begin? I have come to talk to you about, um, well, your language doesn't have anything. We'll call it electricity. Electricity, it's like a powerful spirit that runs along hard things like vines. These are not vines. They don't grow. We make them. In very, very big mud huts. We make them. And we string them from tree to tree. Well, actually, we cut down the trees, take off all the branches, put them... No, no, forget that. We just string them from tree to tree. You see? We string them from tree to tree. And we pump in this spirit, this electricity, at one end. Lickety-split. However you say lickety-split in any of the Neo-Melanesian languages. You pump it in, and and this 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 thing that's like a vine comes into our mud hut and it comes into the thatch roof and um, it goes around uh, clear things that we also make and it goes around there really really fast and it makes it shine like a little sun in our mud hut so that you can stay awake longer at night I don't know why you'd want to but if you wanted to you could stay awake a little longer at night you see and it comes into other round things that we make that are put in the top of squarish things that we make. It goes around there really fast so that it gets hot and you can put your clay pots on there and boil your water and, 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 and you don't have to have a whole lot of smoke in your, in your 
mud hut. How am I doing in explaining um, electricity? Not bad. Not bad. I haven't explained anything about alternating or direct current or systems of generation or storage or the molecular and atomic nature of matter and a positive and negative or I haven't talked about the units of measurement. I haven't talked about volts and amperes. I haven't talked about ohms and resistance. I haven't talked about semiconductors and the revolution that's come about because of semiconductors, transistors first of all and then all the way down to chips and I haven't talked about the digital age. What's the matter with these people? Are they stupid or something? No, no, they're not stupid. Once they immigrate to the U.S., the chances are pretty good their kids will beat your kids in school. Kids of immigrants often do, at least from Asia. They have to try harder. They're number two. So like Avis, they have to try harder. Just give them three or four years. We'll dumb them all out so they can be like the rest of us. But, but, but kids of immigrants traditionally often do try a little harder to begin with. Yes, yes, yes. They're not stupid. They're not genetically inferior. What's their problem? Their problem is they have no experience of that world. None. Whereas our kids are brought up with these things. You know, they're handling cell phones and computers. Our little wee kids are on computers getting into the web, you know, where their grandparents don't even know where the switch is. You know? You find some old-timer who's 85 who's just really pleased because he or she has just figured out how to send a, an email message to his grandson at the university. It's unbelievable. I'm chair of, a, of an organization that, that does research in, 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 in computer-related biblical studies, the Grand Court Institute. But let me tell you, although I spent a lot of time on computers, my son, the parts of it that he knows almost by instinct and feel. He's just brought up with it. So how do we talk about heaven? We are so shut out from the presence of God by our sin and our isolation and our self-worship. How on earth will we talk about heaven? So when Paul is caught up into what he calls a third heaven, Jews often spoke of three heavens. They, the first heaven is simply what we mean by the atmosphere, where the birds fly. And the second was what we mean by the universe, that is the domain of the stars and the galaxies and so on. The third heaven was the presence of God. He's caught up to the very presence of God. And there he sees things that he's not supposed to talk about, but he also calls them inexpressible things. How on earth do you talk about such things? Well, inevitably, you're, you're forced to using metaphors and similes, aren't you? Electricity is like a spirit, which runs through hard things like vines. Similes. Do you see? How do you talk about the throne room of God? Glorious light, like light refracting from all kinds of precious jewels. That's exactly what goes on in, in Revelation 4, do you see? Now Jesus comes along and says to Nicodemus, I've told you about earthly things. And you're having a hard job swallowing that. Supposing I told you about the throne room of God. Do you think you can manage that? Hmm? How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven. And that is to come back and report all of this. Pass it on. Now the only one who has been there and has come to report it is in fact the one who has come from heaven. The Son of Man.
one of his favorite self-designations. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is claiming that the authority of his teaching is bound up with the origin of his coming. It's bound up with his incarnation. He is not claiming to be one more teacher who has found something out by dint of a whole lot of ascetic practices or trying drugs perhaps or thinking about these things in a library for a long time. It's bound up with who he is. At the end of the day, you're forced to divide over Jesus and his astonishing claims. If he is the one from heaven, then he knows about all kinds of things we cannot know about any other way. If he is not, write him off. He's a joke. But those are the only alternatives. Now that is the matrix of authority out of which Jesus says, you must be born again. George Whitfield apparently preached on the text, you must be born again, uh, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of time in his, times in his life as he traveled up and down the uh, eastern seaboard of the United States and in England. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times by sail and was eventually buried in Georgia and saw in his life uh, tens of thousands of men and women genuinely converted under the gospel. And uh, he was once asked, why, why, why? He kept preaching again and again and again. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Why do you keep preaching that? He said, because you must be born again. <laughs> and you see, there, there is something refreshingly plain to that, isn't there? From the voice of one who, in fact, has spoken from heaven. So that's the second point, why Jesus could speak about being born again. It is bound up with his own identity. Third, how Jesus brings about this new birth, verses 14 to 15. About this new birth, why Jesus was sent to bring about this new birth, verses 15 to 21. And, of course, the whole, the whole thing turns on verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. What does that mean? Let me say four things quickly about the love of God from this paragraph. Number one, it is simply astonishing that God loves us. It is simply astonishing that God loves us. There was a time in the history of the church when people found it hard to believe that God loves. They believed that God was just, that God was holy. But to announce the gospel was to announce good news. Despite God's justice, God really loves you. Nowadays, people think God must love you. That's his job. I remember I was studying in Germany a few years ago, trying to improve my German. There was a young French West African there. And uh, because I was brought up in French... Every time we got tired of German, we would go out together for a meal and talk in a blessedly civilized language like French. And, 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 and that's how we got on. And once or twice a week, we would, we would go and grab a bite to eat and natter away in French. And he was improving his German to do a PhD at a German university in, in engineering. And I wasn't trying to improve my, my, uh, my German uh, while I was still studying at Cambridge. And uh, he was married. I was single. He was married. His wife was in English working on her, on her medical degree. And it wasn't long before I discovered that this chap was, uh, at least once a week, was going to the red light district of Hamburg and uh, paying his money and having his woman. And 
after a few weeks, I got to know him well enough. I said, uh, you know, what, what would you do if you found out your wife were doing something similar in, in London? Oh, he said, I'd kill her. I said, that sounds like a bit of a double standard, wouldn't you say? And he said, um, well, you don't understand. He said, from my tribe, the men are allowed to sleep around. The women aren't. And if she did it, she would deserve to die. She would be dishonoring me, but I'm allowed to sleep around. And I said, but you told me you were brought up in a mission school. You know the God of the Bible doesn't grade on the curve according to gender. Ah, he said, le bon Dieu, il doit nous pardonner, c'est son métier. God is good, he's bound to forgive us, that's his job. Now, of course, he was quoting the words of Catherine the Great. Whether he knew that he was or not, I don't know. He was pretty well read, he might well have. But uh, isn't that a pretty common view today? Might not have put it quite so bluntly, but but, but isn't that a pretty common view? If if there is a God, then his, his, his job is to overlook stuff, isn't it? But in fact, the biblical view of God's love is that it is always astonishing because it's so undeserved. Picture Charlie and Susan walking down a beach, maybe by one of the Finger Lakes, at the end of um, term, in in the spring, so so that the weather's nice. And 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 uh, they, they kick off their sandals and they're they're walking, you know, hand in hand, and and they're walking on the eastern shore, and it's evening, and the light is playing over the hills, and there's a wonderful sunset, and 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 they've just finished their exams, they both got firsts, and they're heading off to graduate school together. And Charles turns to Susan, and he says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? What does he mean? He can mean a lot of things. Yeah. He may mean simply that he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her. He might mean nothing more than that. But if we assume that he's got a modicum of decency, let alone Christian principle, then, then the least that he means is something like this. Susan, you're adorable in my eyes. I smell your hair and I'm, I'm drunk with anticipation. Your laughter is spectacular. Your personality is, 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 is so charming. I can't imagine life without you. Um, I, I'm drawn to everything that you do. The, the way you look at the world, the, 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 the complimentary way that, that, that you intuitively suss people out. Why well, I'm so linear and you, you, you've got people much more intuitively than I do. The, 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 way, the way you, you walk, the, 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 the sparkle in your eyes. I, I love you. In other words, he's saying in part, I find you lovely. Isn't that what he's saying when he says that? He's certainly not saying, quite frankly, you are the ugliest thing I have ever seen, but I love you anyway. You know? He's not saying, quite, quite frankly, you've got a personality that would make Genghis Khan look, look, look really gentle. And you know, you, you've got the breast, the halitosis that would scare off a pack of muddy, garlic-eating elephants. And, and your legs, they're, they're about as, as gracious as, as, as a, an arthritic camel. But, but I love you anyway. I mean, you know, he's not saying that, is he? So, so now the text says God so loved the world. What does he mean? Is he saying, oh, world, you're so lovely in my eyes. The spectacular brilliance of your wit. I mean, heaven would be so lonely without you. I mean, 
the dance of your personality. It's, it's so intoxicating. I, I, I can't imagine eternity without your blessed company. I love you. You're lovely in my... Is that what he's saying? You see, now we return to what I said last night about how John uses the word world. World for John means the whole moral order in rebellion against God. In fact, what this text is saying is, morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis. You are the people who are so ugly. You are the people of morally the arthritic camel knees. But I love you anyway. Not because you deserve it, and certainly not because you're lovely, but because I'm that kind of God. And you see, that's the whole point of verses 19 to 21, isn't it? He comes after us, not because we're going after him, but precisely the reverse. Men love darkness rather than light. He comes into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He comes after us anyway. That's the whole point. In fact, the measure of God's love for us is precisely his own son. This one whom he loved in eternity past. This one who guaranteed that the love of God in eternity past was always a social thing. This one who was already described in the very first verse of the book as the one who was with God and the one who was God. He gives himself, he gives his son that, in fact, is the measure of his love for us poor, needy sinners. The measure of God's love, finally, is Jesus. In 1982, there was published in Christianity Today an essay called The Ragman by Walter Wangren. Let me dare to read it to you. Walter Wangren is, is very good at writing these somewhat... Um, evocative, uh, symbol-laden stories. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing in my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of the city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags! Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six foot four, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a ragman in this inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into her handkerchief, sighing and shredding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and dirty pampers. Give me a rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then, as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained, snotty handkerchief to his own face and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left behind without a tear. 
This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head, the bonnet he set on hers. And I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt the sky now into my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more in a hurry. Are you going to work, he asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman inquired, do you have a job? Are you crazy, sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket. It was flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket, and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice, the one-armed man took off his jacket. So did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in his jacket, and when the other put it on, then he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he saw a drunk. Lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left a new suit of clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at his forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick. Yet he went very fast. On spider's legs he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he'd come to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to see where he was going in such a haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to a garbage dump. And then I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill with tormented labor. He cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket. And he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love that ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him, but he died. I cried myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night, Saturday, and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. 
Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face and I blinked and I looked and I saw the last and the first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive and besides that healthy. There was no sign of sorrow nor of age and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen. I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name was shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman, the ragman, the Christ. That's just a story. But Genesis, but John 3 is true. In the 19th century, one of the most moving and insightful of poets was Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She wrote a very famous poem called On Cooper's Grave. The Cooper to whom she is referring shows up in our hymn books as William Cooper, spelt Cowper. William Cooper was a literary critic, a scholar, and a hymn writer. He was a friend of John Newton, converted slave trader. They lived in Alney, produced the Alney hymn book. Cooper spent half his years in an insane asylum, one of those brilliant, brilliant geniuses who was half mad all his life. And in Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, which she purports to write as she's sitting by Cooper's grave. She goes through the genius of the man and his contributions to literary criticism and intellectual light and thought, respected throughout Europe, and relates something of his Christian conviction too in some of his hymns, and then toward the end of the poem. It's a three-page poem. Two stanzas in, from the end, she writes, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry this universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken! It went up from the holy's lips amidst his lost creation that of the lost no son should use this cry of desolation. Do you see what you say? Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Precisely so that for all eternity William Cooper wouldn't have to. That's substitution. That's the serpent on the cross. That's the love of God, who loved the world so much he gave his son, that the one who believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the grounding for the new birth. And nothing else will do. Let me close in prayer, and then we'll open it up for some more questions. We confess with shame, Lord God, that sometimes these things that we know best, we know superficially, or we become inured to them, and somehow, as we may forget the love of a human friend, 
even more disastrously, we forget the dimensions of your love for us. O Lord God, increase our understanding of the ugliness of our sin, of the greatness of your holiness, of the matchless self-giving of your love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And grant us grace, Lord God, by your Spirit, that we might understand these words and respond with contrition and faith and obedience. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I think we have 15 minutes till... I've gone on a bit long. We have 15 minutes for questions, and you'll be... um, Glad to know that in the last session we will have full time for questions. Questions? Comments? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, the question was, uh, when I was talking about uh, new birth and water and the spirit, the verse that follows, verse 6, gives flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. So it seems there that water is being compared to flesh. Um, I didn't give you the full history of the debate, and you're quite right that that is, in fact, one of the arguments that people use to argue that the water and spirit language of verse 5, therefore, really is talking about um, natural birth over against spiritual birth. That is one of the arguments that is used. It is the adducing of verse 6 that is convincing to so many. But with all respect, I still don't think it works. First of all, one still has to deal with the parallelisms between verses 3 and 5. And there it really does seem that being born of water and the Spirit is parallel to being born again. And then second, um, uh, flesh or flesh and blood is a common uh, category for humanness. Uh, Water is not a common human category for humanness. So it is already a leap. It is true that verse 6 is making two kinds of birth um, clear. But the point is not, it seems to me, um, water precisely. It's kind produces kind. So that it becomes part of an illustration as to why spiritual birth that cleans you all up is necessary. But I'm not sure that there's the, the, the connection between verse 5 and 6 is to link water with flesh, but rather to see that verse 6 is a further explanation of why, in fact, precisely because like produces like kind produces kind, therefore you've got to have a spiritual birth. But to my mind, the most convincing argument is precisely that Jesus chews Nicodemus out for not understanding these things down in verse 10. And the ground on which Nicodemus should have understood them was because he was an expert in Scripture. And so you're looking for something, it seems to me, in Scripture, in verse 5, that Jesus is trying to latch on to. And there the water and spirit collocation from the Old Testament not least in a New Covenant passage like Ezekiel 36, stands out so strongly that it seems to me it's the better interpretation. Does that make sense? But you're quite right. Verse 6 is what people apply to to justify that argument. Um, the, ar- the, the question is, um, some have argued that um, the, the water here stands for the word of God. Um, uh, what, would I, what would I say about that? Um, the, the argument for that comes actually from the book of Titus which speaks of the washing of water through the word. And, uh, and so that, that, that is read back then into this, into this, into this passage. And um, 
my, my argument in part is um, be careful how metaphors are used. Um, unless a metaphor becomes a terminus technicus, a technical term that always has exactly the same weight, then the immediate context has, has to have controlling sway. For example, um, uh, Jesus is portrayed as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, the devil is portrayed as a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. It would take an extremely perverse mind, therefore, to infer that Jesus is the devil. Because the, the, the metaphorical language of lion is being used in two quite different ways, depending on the context. Um, leaven, yeast, is often used in a metaphorical context that describes the corruption of sin. It, 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 the bad apple ruins the whole barrel. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's used in the Old Testament that way. It's used in Paul that way. On the other hand, Jesus can also use leaven language to talk about the growing kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that is put into a... Which doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is foundationally evil. Um, and, and so one has to be very careful, it seems to me, about the use of metaphors not to try to uh, authorize a particular interpretation by appeal to the same formal metaphor that is functioning in quite a different way in other parts of Scripture. So, I have no doubt that, that sometimes the word can be used in Scripture as a kind of cleansing agent. Thus, in the book of Proverbs, how should a young man cleanse his way but by taking heed according to his word, to your word, you see? And likewise in Titus, by the washing of water through the word. But it seems to me that in this context, where that is not brought up at all, and where the allusion, it seems to me, is in water-spirit combination that harks back to an Old Testament passage, which brings you to Ezekiel, in a book that is full of this new covenant language, in this particular context where, in these, where, where the man is rebuked for not understanding the Old Testament text and so on, it, it, it seems to me that that is reaching for a, a metaphorical use that is not constrained by this immediate context. Um, in my talk, I listed three interpretations. There are eight or ten, and you've now brought up a, you know, number four, number five on, on, on the list. And there are, there are a bunch of others as well. I just didn't go through them all. But that's why I don't really accept that one. Well, I, I, I think that Ezekiel is the, the, the immediate reference to water and spirit terminology, all right. In fact, I would go further and say, somebody's, somebody needs to do a dissertation on this subject. I think there are all kinds of allusions in John's Gospel to Ezekiel that have sometimes been overlooked. Um, for example, I think that in the, um, in, 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 in the resurrection of Lazarus, uh, scheme. Uh, I think that there are allusions to, to, to the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, in John 10, the, 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 the shepherd language, um, I think that, that's, there's an allusion there to Ezekiel 34. A uh, whole bunch of them, where, where God says, you know, I'm, I'm tired of the shepherds of Israel. They've done this, they have fleeced the sheep, they have done that. I will be a shepherd to my people Israel. I will nurture them. 25 times approximately, he says, I will lead them, and I will be their doctor, I will heal them, I will separate sheep from goats. And then right at the end he says, I will send my servant David to be the shepherd of my people Israel. See, I think that language is being brought forward in John 10. In other words, I think that the book of John is full of Ezekiel uh, allusions too. And, uh, and so that also tends to make me drift toward uh, what, what, what I think is another Ezekiel illusion in John 3. Okay. In other words, it's not just that I'm pulling out a parallel from somewhere. I mean, if I try to pull out a parallel from Paul, the problem with that is it's not antecedent to John's discussion with, uh, with Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. You see, it's not that I'm arbitrary, arbitrarily choosing my parallels. You choose Titus and I choose Ezekiel. It's not that. The point is Ezekiel is antecedent to Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is rebuked for not understanding the text that he's supposed to be the specialist in. 
And, and, and it's in a book where they're full of Ezekiel illusions. Do you, you, you see what I mean? Whereas you can't really expect Nicodemus to have picked up an illusion that Paul hadn't made yet. Um, the question was, if Nicodemus hadn't been a learned Pharisee, would he have used the same reference uh, or not? Short answer is, don't have a clue. The slightly longer answer is, um, uh, Jews on the whole were far more biblically literate today than the difference between a Regius professor of divinity and a, an undergraduate in engineering at Cornell. In, in other words, all, because almost all Jews went to synagogue and heard scriptures read week after week after week after week, um, they knew, I mean, they, they were... A decent rabbi in the first century had memorized the entire Hebrew canon, plus a corpus of, 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 of literature about twice as long again. So in that sense, most people wouldn't have known the text the way Nicodemus would have. But most would have known about such passages. Most would have known the Old Testament storyline, the basic content of all books and so on, and some of them would have memorized parts of it. Every Jewish boy was brought up literate. He was taught to, 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 to read and write in the, in the local synagogue. So, uh, it, it may well be, therefore, that Jesus would have used the same reference in any case, you see. But he might not have rebuked the person for not understanding it quite the way he rebuked Nicodemus, who comes on with a certain pomposity, and then, and then is rebuked when he doesn't understand. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Again, it's, it's local context first. Uh, the we in chapter 1 can't be a we of Jesus and the Father. It's a we of the witnesses to him. The we in chapter 5, which recurs, is a multiple attestation of, of all the things that bespeak who Jesus is. Um, the word does, the Holy Spirit, uh, the paraclete does, the Father does. The signs and miracles in chapter 1034 are part of the we that bear witness to who Jesus is. If you don't, if you don't believe my words, at least believe the signs and so on, and Jesus himself bearing witness. So that is a pretty common Johannine theme. But in this particular case, the immediate context, it seems to me, um, is, 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 is how do you know, on, on what basis am I making these claims? Am, am I saying these things? And the next verse says what it is. I've come down from heaven. No one has ever been there to see. I'm telling you what I have seen. We speak what we know. So I think it's more likely in the context of, 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 of 11 and 12, right after the rebuke of verse 10, and in the light of the we that has just gone on in the same pericope in Nicholas's, in Nicholas's, that's my son, in Nicodemus's rather obscure boast back in verse 2, you, you see, I think it's far more likely that he's answering and, and Nicodemus in, in kind and, and rebuking him and then talking about his own personal self-disclosure. In, in, in terms of appeals to context, it, it must always work out literarily from the immediate context to the, to the pericope, to, to the larger book, to the corpus, to the testament, to the canon, it, it, rather than the other way around. And, uh, and if, if, if that's the principle that you hold, then it seems to me that this interpretation makes more sense. Um, uh, I have uh, spoken from this text uh, evangelistically, with the same outline, in many universities in this nation and abroad, just made the language simpler, made the Old Testament illusions simpler, gave more background uh, evangelistically. Because it seems to me that that to get across the gospel today, amongst biblically illiter illiterate folk, it really is important to lay in enough of the background that people see that this is not an appeal for an existential leap 
into a great unknown. There is a whole background of revelation and storyline and so on. So that in evangelistic sermon after evangelistic sermon, um, I try to fill in more and more and more of that storyline. So I, I do the same thing. It's just that I ratchet it up a little bit uh, for, for a crowd of mostly Christians. And then if you were all Greek students in an upper level course, you'd be falling out of a Greek New Testament, ratchet it up some more um, and, and assume a little more and then push a little farther on the technical details. But it's still basically the same text that you have to explain again and again and again, whether you're doing evangelism or training Christians or, or whatever. It's part of worldview formation, isn't it? To bring our minds into conformity to Christ, and to think all of God's thoughts after him. That's what Paul prays, that you be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, There are several factors. In the first place, I don't think that the Jews always have the same referent. I think that sometimes the Jews means the Judeans, and that's part of the explanation why it's chosen. I mean, the, the word Jew is actually originally an abbreviation for Judean. And you see, Jews in Galilee often refer to Judeans as Jews. Do you see? It's a bit like, a, this is not a very good example, this is the best one I can think of off the top of my head. If you're south of the Mason-Dixon line, you can refer to the Yanks. And they're the people north of the Mason-Dixon line. But if you're overseas and, and you're talking to a Brit, um, you're, you're in some sort of a common UN peace patrol, then you can hear the, Blitz refer, the Brits referring to the bloody Yanks. And they're not distinguishing people north and south of the Mason-Dixon line. They're just Americans. Do, 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 do you see? And, 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 and thus, um, expressions uh, have slightly different um, references de- depending on, um, on, on, on who's using them and in what particular context. Um, moreover, in terms of the denunciation that you get in, chapter, um, in, in, in John's Gospel, it really is important to understand that the language there is mild compared with the Old Testament prophetic language. The Old Testament prophetic language was always Jew to Jew, or, not to be anachronistic, um, Hellenist, uh, 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 Israelite to Israelite. It, it, it was always Hebrew to Hebrew. I mean, that's what it was. But nobody would accuse them of being anti-Semitic. Or if you want to read some really blistering language, read some of what the Dead Sea Scroll community leaders had to say in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, of, of what they call the wicked priest and the whole Jerusalem establishment and so on, so on. So on. They load them with a passion, confine them to the fires of hell and all kinds of things. You, 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 you see, and that was certainly Jew to Jew. But we don't go around speaking of the of the of the of the um, of, of, of the um, uh, the Dead Sea Scroll Essene communities as being anti-Semitic. How do you use that language when it's all Jews referring to Jews? So, I think that what's going on in part in this debate, which is an enormously difficult and sensitive one, I acknowledge that, is a whole lot of um, um, post-Holocaust perspective. And and there's a sense in which which one understands it, in which one wants wants to sympathize. Then you add to that a kind of post-modern insistence that you're never allowed to say that anybody is wrong. And then then it's nice to be able to blame the Christians for writing the New Testament and being a bunch of anti-Semites. It's just historically is, is, is desperately anachronistic. If you want to argue that, that Christians have often been anti-Semitic, then to our shame, that's the truth. And, 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 yet, and yet to argue that it is Christianity that is responsible for the Holocaust is simply nonsense. Um, unless you want to say that Hitler and Eichmann and so on were first and foremost fine exemplars of Christian faith. Um, uh, it, it just isn't the way it is. 
And, and so, uh, if you want to say that Christians have often been complicit in horrible anti-Semitism, uh, yes. If you want to say also that, um, that, that Christians have been uh, involved uh, immorally and irresponsibly in slavery, yes. Uh, to our shame. But I would also point out that in, let's take racism. Racism is a far, far deeper problem than, 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 than Gentile uh, Christian. Um, uh, Koreans and Japanese do not, with rare exceptions, lose a lot of love. Now, that, uh, that's, uh, it goes back to some of their own history. Likewise, Chinese and, and Japanese, where people sometimes prefer to speak of uh, ethnic differences rather than racial differences, but it, it really comes down to the same sort of hate. Um, at, at the time that about 11 million Africans were sold and shipped across the United States, uh, the, the Atlantic, the United States, 14 million Africans were shipped uh, up into the Arab world, either across the, um, the, the, the Sahara Desert, where the death rates were even higher than the boats across the Atlantic, or up the Persian Gulf. Now, the interesting thing is that there's risen a whole literature of, of uh, remorse, confession, guilt, um, regret, shame, in the Christian West, there is no such similar regret or shame literature in the Muslim Arab world. None. So, because we hear all of this, then we think of the Christians were the worst in all of this. It just historically isn't true. I mean, that we were complicit in it again and again and again and again is true. God help us. God forgive us. And God help us to be self-critical. But one of the interesting things that it's been precisely the Christian world that has produced a whole lot of shame literature and all these kinds of things for things where we were complicit and even for things where we weren't, as in the Holocaust. Um, there were some individuals, but it wasn't a Christian position particularly that brought it all about, you see. And then to argue anachronistically that, that, that John's gospel is anti-Semitic, it really is historical rubbish of the first water. It, it, I, I don't know what else to say. It, it, it really is a, a, a big mistake. Unless you're going to start accusing Isaiah or Micah of, of, of being an anti-Semite. That's really what you'd have to do to be consistent. And that just doesn't make any sense at all.